So why do people fast? Uh, For the record, fasting is foregoing food for a time. Often, but not always, for spiritual reasons. Have you wondered why people fast? Maybe you've given it a go, but decided, no, it's not for me. Maybe it's a regular part of your walk with Christ. And you could step up here and give us lots of great reasons why we could fast for one day or more. In the Bible, we see Moses on Mount Sinai, David with his newborn infant who is deathly ill, and Jesus in the wilderness, all fasting. There's teaching in the Bible about fasting, but most of it is sorting out good fasts gone bad. It seems that there are many ways to misuse this spiritual discipline. Uh, We're going to have a look at a video clip now that gives some examples of good fasting gone bad. It's great to uh, skip a meal or two so you can hear God's voice better, you know, stay plugged into him. Yeah. You know, some people uh, fast from phones and music and gadgets. But that's, that's not a sacrifice. That's, that's not even biblical. I mean, that, that's crazy talk, you know? I mean, God gave us this stuff so we could stay plugged into him, maximize our lives. It also keeps us busy enough to never be still or quiet. Are you even a Christian? I dare you to fast from your phone for one minute. You know, fine. Minute. You got it. No biggie. I don't care. I probably should take that. I fast. Okay, that's a total lie. I don't even fast at all. Okay, I want to. Another lie. Don't even think about it. Deal is, I'm hypoglycemic and diabetic, and that's not even close to the truth at all, okay? Hey, even the Bible says, he who hopes dies fasting, right? Right? Okay, Benjamin Franklin said that right before he died. Bottom line, fasting makes me hungry. Are we almost uh, done? Hello, I'm Brett Johansson, and I believe that fasting is one of the greatest spiritual disciplines one can achieve in their faith. When my family or friends invite me to go to lunch, I gently remind them and passive-aggressively admonish them by reminding them, did you not get my fasting notification email? Oh, that I had the luxury to eat lunch like you do. (laughs) Every year around Easter, I go through a 40-day fast to heighten my sensation of the Easter holiday. This year, however, I've decided to tack on 10 extra days. (laughs) So by the time we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, I will have been fasting for 50 whole days. If I survive. In my fast, I have a very rigid schedule. And if you do not have a rigid schedule, then God does not approve. Some people like to cheat, and they drink flavored waters and juices within the fast. You must be drinking unfiltered well water. And if you do not drink unfiltered well water, God does not approve. In the afternoon, I put a cone of silence around me. I do not talk to anyone. Yes, that does annoy people. Yes, it does anger my coworkers. I am persecuted within my fast. And if you are not persecuted within the fast, God does not approve. When I get home, I go straight to my prayer closet. I do not talk to my wife. I do not play with the kids. I let them fend for themselves. And if the kids do not fend for themselves and the wife does not get talked to, God does not approve. You know what? I'm going to ask nice one more time and then I am not in control of what happens, okay? So give me the phone. Okay, fine. I need the phone. I, I need the call. 
So there are just a, a few of the ways we can misuse fasting. So, good fasting, bad fasting, or not to fast at all. Well, today, as we continue through Mark, we'll see Jesus dealing with the question about fasting. So we'll dive into the text in Mark chapter 2, verse 18. What's Jesus got to say about fasting? Verse 18, now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but not yours? Now, this is the third controversial question thrown at Jesus in this chapter, and it won't be the last. Earlier in verse 6, there's, who can forgive sins but God alone? In verse 16, it was, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And here it's, why aren't your disciples fasting? So why this question about fasting? What's the background behind this accusation? Well, apparently fasting was expected. John the Baptist's disciples were fasting and so were the Pharisees and their disciples. So we're going to look at these two groups separately and why they were fasting. Well, firstly, there's the disciples of John the Baptist. Now, for their motivation, we can only speculate. Maybe it was because by now John was in prison and maybe they were praying and fasting for his release. That would be understandable, wouldn't it? Maybe it was just part of being John the Baptist's disciple. John was always fasting and praying and eating locusts and wild honey and wearing funny clothing, so maybe that's just part of the deal if you were to follow John the Baptist. We're not really sure of their motivations, but in all all likelihood, John the Baptist's disciples were probably fasting for good reasons. But not so the Pharisees. Talk about strings attached and one-upmanship. In Luke 18, in that parable we had read earlier, Jesus lays bare their motivation to fast, and it's not good. And we start looking at uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told his parable. We notice how Jesus describes the Pharisees here? Confident in their own righteousness and looking down on everyone. They were confident that their long public prayers, their public giving to the poor, and their public displays of fasting made them special with God. They knew the rules and they kept the rules. With their own determination by their grit and persistent, they were expert fasters. And those not living up to their standards, well, they were just looked down upon. So let's see how this parable in Luke plays out. Verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Here we see a Pharisee fasting twice a week. That's impressive. He's a double faster. Fast at everything he does. But who told him to fast twice a week? Certainly not God. There's only one command in the Bible to fast. There's lots of encouragement in the Bible to fast, 
but only one command, and that's found in Leviticus, and it's on the Day of Atonement. Only on this day were God's people commanded to fast. So all this grandstanding by the Pharisees with multiple days, all this self-righteousness and looking down on others was not because God wanted it. In fact, in God's eyes, it was completely worthless. For Jesus goes on to say, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus went on to say, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So this then is the background to the question. Uh, John's disciples were fasting and fasting well. The Pharisees were fasting, but fasting badly. And apparently, Jesus' disciples weren't fasting at all. And so, back to Mark, verse 18. How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And so Jesus answers with a parable. It's the first one recorded in the Gospel of Mark. And like a lot of parables, this one has a sting in its tail. Verse 19, Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. Short and to the point. You see, weddings were a big deal in Jesus' day. They were a multi-day occasion. We catch a glimpse of this in John's Gospel when Jesus turns water into wine. It was at a wedding with food and drink flowing freely with music and laughter abounding. This was the way of weddings in Jesus' day. How ridiculous to think of guests fasting in such a celebration. At the very least, it would be an insult to the host and a snub to the community. So straight away, we understand why Jesus' disciples are not fasting. I mean, we also celebrate at weddings, and we know that it would be just foolish. It just doesn't happen, does it? So Jesus didn't need to quote and cross-reference scripture or give a, a complex theological reply. He just said, when you're at a wedding... Nobody fasts. However, though Jesus' answer is simple, it carries weighty implications. For his reply only makes sense if we acknowledge who Jesus is. It only makes sense if Jesus is no ordinary bridegroom, but someone so unique that he can set aside standard biblical practices. So by him claiming to be the bridegroom and overruling fasting, is quite an audacious claim. And John the Baptist would have to agree, for he also describes Jesus as the bridegroom. Before he was thrown in prison, and after Jesus was baptised, and as Jesus was starting his ministry, people started to leave John, the crowds started to leave John, and move over to Jesus. And so people asked John, well, are you upset? Are you concerned? that people are leaving you and going to Jesus. And his reply is, I am not the Christ. This is in John chapter 3, 27. I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens to him. And it's full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He, that's Jesus the bridegroom, must become greater, 
and I must become less. See, John describes himself as the best man, the bridegroom's friend, and the people that are listening as the bride. And John, as the best man, is happy that the bridegroom gets all of the attention, just like today. You know, it's the bridegroom and the bride that get all the attention, and that's deserved. Not the best man, and that's how John saw himself and how he saw Jesus. But notice, he is also seen bridegroom as the Christ. He says, I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. And then he talks about the bridegroom. So for John the Baptist... This bridegroom is the Messiah, the anointed one. And this bridegroom, this Christ, is about to do something new and unexpected and it will turn not just fasting but all religious convention on its head. And so we go back to Mark chapter 2, verse 21. No one sews a patch of untrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. Now, much of our modern clothing is pre-shrunk. Gone are the days of allowing for shrinkage when we first wash a new item of clothing. Though some of us may remember the time when we got an item of clothing and put it on the wrong wash cycle. You remember those days? I do. And coming out with something that was unwearable because it had shrunk. But that largely doesn't happen now. But, of course, the example is if you've got a, a piece of clothing with a hole and it has already been shrunk through washing and you get a, a brand-new piece of fabric and sew it over, and when that new fabric shrinks, it will tear a bigger hole. And then Jesus goes on to say, uh, give another similar example from everyday life. In verse 22, And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. Now he pours new wine into new wineskins. Now this example is a bit harder for us to come to terms with because we expect our wine in glass bottles, not leather skins. But in those days, new wineskins were great for new wine because they had a little bit of give, flexibility. And the new wine hadn't finished fermenting, and as it fermented in the new skins, the wineskins could stretch. But after a time, the wineskins would grow brittle and inflexible. So if you reused an old wineskin and put new wine in it, the new wine would expand, but the old wineskin would split, and both the wine and the wineskin would be wasted. So what's Jesus saying here with these two examples taken from everyday life? Well, he's saying, I am the new bridegroom. And not only am I going to turn religious convention on its head, but I'm going to do something new and wonderful. Something so wonderful that a new fix, putting a patch on, is not going to make a difference. It's going to make it worse. Something new and wonderful that we can't use old containers because they will burst. And it's something I've already been telling you about. Because we remember the words of Mark chapter 1, verse 15, when Jesus laid down his mandate. He defined what he had come to do. He said, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. And this kingdom is so new and so fresh that old structures, old religious ways of doing things are not going to cope. If you put this new kingdom in the synagogue or the temple worship, they will split. It is time to do something new and refreshing. The time has come, the kingdom of God is near. 
the bridegroom has arrived and is inaugurating a new celebration, a new feast that is fresh and cannot be contained in what's gone before. Isn't that wonderful news? But how will this happen? What will this amazing wedding celebration look like? Will it be one long feast that just grows and gets bigger with more and more people joining the party? What will this feasting around the bridegroom look like? And this is where the sting in the tail of this, this parable comes. The sting in the tail. Verse 20, Jesus says, But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Now, the bridegroom taken, and what does Jesus mean by this? The word used here, taken, uh, has, is used in other places in the Bible, not all the time, but at times for being forcefully taken, reached, removed. But this is not what happens in weddings. In Jesus' day, after a few days of feasting, the bride and the groom were paraded down the street to start their new lives together. The bridegroom is not separated from the bride or the guests unless there's trouble unless there's a disruption, a calamity. So what does Jesus mean by the bridegroom will be taken? And do you see what's happening here? Do you see where Jesus is pointing to? Even now, he is pointing to the cross. Already Jesus knows where he's heading, and indeed it will be into trouble and disruption and calamity, and it will force an end to the celebration the feasting with the bridegroom and the guests. For when we fast forward three years to a garden just outside Jerusalem, we see the following happening. Mark chapter 15, verse 44. Now the betrayer had signaled or arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And the men seized Jesus and arrested him. And they took the bridegroom away. They took the bridegroom away to the cross where he who least deserved it was punished for our sins. Jesus was rejected by his heavenly father so that we might be accepted. And Jesus is the great and the wonderful bridegroom who was taken by force from the feast so that we, his bride could be made right. Without the cross, we would have a bridegroom, but no bride. But because of the cross, we are made beautiful and we are made acceptable in a most wonderful way. We are made beautiful in a way that an old threadbare garment that was repaired would never be. And the feast is not wine from old wineskins, but new and fresh and everlasting. And again, we find ourselves moved and our hearts captivated by the beauty and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who even way back here in chapter 2, as his ministry was beginning, had his heart set on the cross because it would make his bride beautiful. How can we not gaze and wonder and gladly bow our knee before the most wonderful of bridegrooms, whom we adore, and rightly so. And so we turn to application. What's our take home? What can we put into practice? 
Well, Jesus said it, didn't he? When the bridegroom's taken, then it will be time to fast, and that time is now. So even though Jesus does not command us to fast, he expects us to fast. When the bridegroom is taken, then you will fast. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus points out how the Pharisees fasted badly. They were making it very public and dramatic, so everybody would turn to the Pharisees and say, oh, look at them, they're fasting, aren't they wonderful? And Jesus then said, when you fast. He didn't say, oh, well, the Pharisees are mucking up, so never fast. He says to the people listening on the Sermon on the Mount, but when you fast, and gave instructions to do it quietly and discreetly and sort of wash your face and look tidy, don't look dishevelled, go about normal so only your Heavenly Father will see and reward. So for many of us, this is new territory. Fasting is rarely mentioned in our circles, maybe in the context of a health fad, you know, go without food and you'll lose weight. But when it comes to the benefits, the spiritual benefits and the practice of fasting, we could preach many sermons. So just briefly some pointers. First, try skipping one meal. Just one meal. Use that time to read your Bible or pray. It's a good place to start. Try that every now and again. Secondly, once you've tried that, move on to sort of a 24-hour fast. Like you finish your evening meal and you don't have anything that night or anything the next day and you break your fast with the next evening meal. Keep your fluids up. Even though in that little video clip you would admonish not to have juice or flavoured water, that's okay. It's not a competition. The focus is on being obedient to Christ and experience his presence. Again, instead of having the meal, spend a bit of time in God's word or praying. And when those hunger pains come and your body screams at you, why aren't you feeding me? Use that to focus on God and pray. Even if the prayer is, oh, I hate this Lord, why am I doing it? I forgot. It's okay. You're learning. So there's encouragement. Use that time. Fasting has an amazing ability to focus your attention on God and his ways. So that's the first application, fasting. But there's a second as well. Be open to a new move of God. Remember the garment and the wine? Be open to a new move of God. We so easily get into a rut. We so easily come to church Sunday by Sunday and don't expect God to do anything new. And this grieves our Father's heart. You see, if there's one thing that church history teaches us is that the new cloth will be torn and that the old wineskins will burst as Jesus does a new work in his church. And I've just started reading a book by Martin Lloyd-Jones on the Welsh revival in the 1850s. It's a great book, but it's all about new wine bursting old wineskins. Some of us here can remember the Jesus movement in the 1960s. All those bare feet, long-headed people, long-headed people going around talking about Jesus. And the church didn't know what to do with them. <laughs> New wine into old wineskins. What about the 70s and the 80s and the charismatic movement? And Jesus was doing a new thing. New wine into old wineskins. What new work 
does Christ want to do in your life in 2019? I know most of us have got Christmas on the mind and we can't see past the 26th of December. But often, doesn't it? It's part of our culture that after the busyness of Christmas and things slow down or at least get less busy, we reflect on the past year and we look to a new year and we think of resolutions and things like that. But what new thing does God want to do for you in 2019? And more importantly, are you open? Have you turned into an old wineskin that is brittle and doesn't want to expand with the new life of Christ. And what about this church? What does God want to do with this church, with us as a fellowship in 2019? Are we as a church open to the new wine? Because Jesus is sovereign. The bridegroom is on the move. And he gave his life to make his bride beautiful and sometimes we resist. But goodness me, when we get in sync with Christ, the wonderful bridegroom, he will make his bride just lovely. Let's be open to the new wine of the Spirit in 2019. And let me finish with this quote from Isaiah 62 and then we'll be done. Isaiah 62 verse 5. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. So, who is this Jesus that we bow our knee to? Well, all through the Gospel of Mark, he shows us time and time again that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And today, Mark has shown us that Jesus is the bridegroom who dearly loves you. Rejoice in the love of the bridegroom. Let us pray.